this is what queer looks like. Queer can look like anything. This black woman who's a politician, a mother, neurodiverse. You can be all of those things and also queer. Hi, I'm Adam. Hello, I'm Joe. Welcome to Pride and Progress, a podcast which amplifies the voices of LGBT plus educators and allies. In each episode, we're joined by a variety of guests to discuss how we can collectively reimagine our educational spaces as LGBT plus inclusive. Join us as we learn, unlearn and celebrate the power of diversity. Hello friends and welcome to Pride and Progress. This week we are delighted to welcome Abena Akufa Kelly to the show. Abena uses she, her pronouns and is a speaker, union activist, mentor and coach. Among her many roles, Abena is an educational consultant with the DfE-funded Inclusion in Schools project, where she helps schools and colleges to transform and diversify their provision and practice in regards to their protected characteristics and careers. She is also a lead facilitator with the NCCE, the National Centre for Computing Education, and is an infused partnership coach supporting schools to raise aspirations and engagement in STEM subjects. Abena speaks and trains on race and ethnicity, gender, LGBT rights and neurodiversity, and is an associate facilitator with the Social Enterprise Leader Plus. She is also a local councillor at both town and district level, as well as being Deputy Mayor of Folkestone and the Chair of Folkestone and Hythe District Council. Her main passion is ensuring that intersectionality is considered in every discourse and has contributed to a book on diversity and inclusion in education to share her ideas. Abena, a warm welcome to the show. Hello. Good morning. I'm so glad you could join us. I mean, Adam, take a breath after that introduction. There's a lot to go through. Amazing. I guess my first question, Abena, is is like, do you sleep? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> um, and I, I suppose, you know, the list of things probably sort of speak to my ADHD. Um, and, you know, people are always talking about the negatives of ADHD, but one of the positives for me is the fact that I can do lots of different things mm. because I get bored really easily. And that's why I do so much. And to, to, to be honest, sometimes I get bored of sleeping. I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm like, oh, enough of that. It's boring. Let me do something. So, yeah. I think that was a really important conversation, moving away from that deficit model and realising actually there's some real strength um, in terms of how much you're able to achieve. I mean, that's amazing. I'm always really interested when people have quite a varied work their their job and their work is quite varied like it seems yours is is there is there one part of your work that you love the most do you have a favorite part of all of the things that you do so the thing that ties all of those things together is making a difference and helping people so for me they're not varied because I'm actually doing the same thing over and over again in different formats and in different scenarios and in different roles. But it's the same thing as a counsellor. I I help people as, you know, an educational consultant. I help people as a speaker. I help people as a mentor. I help people. So that is the, the, the theme that runs through all of them. And, you know, the reason why I've, you know, if you've spoken to me maybe this time last year or maybe a month prior to this, I would have said something completely different because, you know, I was still a full-time teacher. Um, I was the head of department um, for computer science. And at that point, I was deciding to make that break. And um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Ikigai. I'm, I'm probably not pronouncing it properly. But it's just having that balance between what um, you can get paid for 
what you know you love what the world needs mm. and what your skills are and i've been i it's also like this big venn diagram and i've been trying to find that sweet spot where it covers all of those things and um i i feel like i have and uh, you know i am i feel so blessed so blessed and you know let's use a, a biblical um statement here that you know i feel like my cup runneth over at the moment because i'm doing all the things that make my heart sing every day i wake up and i'm like yep i'm going to be doing this i'm going to be doing that and all of these things are going to be helping people so i smile i wake up at smiling because i'm like yeah i'm really i'm really making a difference and that is the most important thing to me to be actually making a difference you can you can be in a job and making money for the sake of making money and that's great some people love that but I want to be making money because I'm actually making a difference and I'm helping people and that that just fills my soul really it does that's so gorgeous I, I love the idea of when people say so what do you do for a living and you say I help people yeah <laughs> it's so hard that's, to condense into a sentence but that's what that's you're doing the easiest way to do it because if I if I actually tell them what I do it usually they need about 30 minutes for me to explain every single role because there are so many of them. That's so right. if I just say, Oh, I help people, they're like, Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> In what That's way? So, no, I love that as a as a summary of everything that you do. And I think about um how we first met. We both met because we were working at a conference together. And mm. the session that you delivered at that conference certainly helped people. I mean, for me, it was the most interesting part of the day and the part of the day that I really reflected on when I left you delivered a session kind of on exploring bias Mm. and really that's what I I want to focus a lot of our conversation today on so to get us started on on thinking about this idea of bias could you tell us tell the listeners in Mm. in simple terms what are we talking about when we use that word I think the main thing that I think about when I think about bias is a shortcut we have so many things, so many pressures. So we're, we're, we're constantly dealing with information overload. And um, to make it easier for us to make decisions, because we have to make these snap decisions constantly in our lives, we have these biases that we have formed through um, past experiences, through societal norms and so on, which we use to make these decisions to make our lives easier. Because... If you actually took the time to really, for example, when you first meet somebody, to really just meet them as they are, rather than meet them as other experiences that you've had of people who are similar to them, then that would actually take a lot of your time. It would take a lot of effort. It takes a lot of mental energy to do that. And so just to make it a little bit easier for ourselves, we use those shortcuts. And the reason why I like to explain it in that way is that I think a lot of the time when people talk about biases, um, they use it as a stick to beat people with. And sometimes, you know, when you have somebody talking about bias and they're doing some sort of course, they make it seem like they're some sort of angel, some sort of saint, and they don't have any biases. And it's you who has the biases. You're the problem. But Everybody has them. You know, I used to say to my students, I'm 99.9% perfect. And, you know, that tiny little percentage that isn't perfect, you know, has some biases, you know, because I'm human. 
And this is what we do to deal with situations in a, an effective way. But what we need to do really is to stop sometimes, just stop and allow ourselves to think. This person may be black, this person may be gay, this person may be whatever, but they are an individual. They're not like the other black person I saw yesterday. They're not like the other gay person I saw yesterday. They are an individual in their own right. It'll take you longer if you want to do things that way, but everybody deserves to be treated as an individual because that's what they are. This is this is exactly why I was hoping to have this conversation today, because in, in the training that, that I saw you deliver and in the way you just explained it now, there's no blame and there's no. no shame in it, which I think so often in conversations around around challenging bias, there there feels like there's blame and, and mm. that generates shame in people. And, and it builds up this wall between yeah. the person and what we're actually trying to achieve in those conversations. But actually, exactly. the way you just define that, you position yourself within it. It's something we all have. Um, mm-hmm. It's shortcuts that we all make, which I think is a much more powerful way is to, to open up a conversation that more people will be receptive to do you find that in your training exactly and do you know what I actually find in my training as well which always makes me laugh at the end of it people say I actually feel empowered I you know because I talk about privilege and I talk about the fact that sometimes even if you think you don't have privilege you do and you can use that privilege to leverage you know opportunities for other people um and that actually makes people feel empowered so I've delivered it to a group of black educators and they were surprised because they were expecting that yes we were going to talk about all the things that you know all the struggles that you have you know because the struggle is real being a black person um and I said you know what you still have a you still have privilege as well you know you are in a middle class um um, prof- a professional role you have so many opportunities to be able to mold um, people's thinking you do actually have privilege and if for example you're you're black and you're you're cis het you're going to have more privilege than somebody who's black and is, is trans and or is is gay or whatever and you can use that privilege as well to support that person so yeah I think it's really, really important if you want to make that sort of behavioural change that you don't start at, um, at a, um, a sort of point of beating people up and saying, yeah, um, you're a bad person, because who, who wants to hear that? No one. But when you, when you start off with you're human, and this is a human thing, yes. but we can actually work on this, and I'm working on it as well. I'm not a perfect article. I'm still working on this. We can work on it together. People are more likely to resonate. And then because they resonate, they're more likely to actually think, yeah, okay, I'm going to work on this because you're you're not trying to be negative. You're just saying it's a fact, but we're going to work on it. I think this point about shortcuts is a really interesting one because actually in the book we talked about the fact that people often have this like a blueprint already about certain identities for example Um, and often you know if you don't you you might know a gay person you might know a black person but Uh when we kind of overlap these intersectional identities of black and gay and disabled for example people don't have a role model of what that person may look like Uh or the different ways they may look and we have these kind of shortcuts as you've described them and perhaps kind of stereotypical assumptions as a consequence. 
Yeah, and I find as somebody who is, <laughs> I always say, um, I one of the things I do in some of my um sessions is I do um sort of like privilege bingo or intersectional bingo, and I always say like if somebody recruits me for a role, they they sort of would um, meet most of their diversity quota just by recruiting me because you know I'm a woman, I'm gay, I'm um, I'm black, I'm neurodiverse, and and you know one of the things about me is that I'm quite straight passing. So people do make the assumption that I'm straight. I have a child. So again, that, that, that builds on um, that assumption. And the only time that people make the assumption that I'm gay is when they see me with my partner, because my partners are usually more the stereotypical idea of what a gay woman looks like. One of the things I speak about all the time is that this accent obviously you can't see me because we're on the podcast but this accent gives people a certain view of who I am so when they hear this voice the privilege that I gain from this southeastern sort of posh accent is that people make this assumption that I'm I'm highly intelligent um I am of course but (laughs) it's possible to have this accent and not be intelligent as well so there are so many different layers of privilege and I think it's important for people to understand that they're not working on just one level. They're not just working on one level of bias because uh, the other way that I describe it sometimes is that when people meet me, there's several hurdles. So, you know, for example, the first thing that they'll see is that I'm a woman and, you know, are they are they a misogynist? If they're misogynist, they'll speak to me in a certain way. Okay, they're not misogynist. They see that I'm black. Are they racist? If if they're racist, they'll speak to me in another way, a certain way. And then when they realise that I'm gay, because I might tell them, would they? So there's all these different hurdles, and that's just one person that has to sort of um, navigate these different biases. It's not just a straight, oh right, okay, um, I'm biased against this person because of this thing. There are so many different ways that they can be biased against you. I think. Those examples that you briefly gave there, talking about your own experience, are really useful because for anyone who's listening to this podcast today and, and we've framed it in a way where there's there's no blame and there's no shame, but let's have this conversation. Mm. Maybe those examples will help them to notice where their own bias might exist. So mm. I wonder if if maybe we think about the, the protected characteristics yeah. as a bit of a starting point for this conversation. Mm-hmm. What kind of bias do we see in relation to some of those protected characteristics? Can we share some more of examples like that? So I'm I'm going to actually talk about the ways that sometimes these protected characteristics can be an advantage. Because again, I, I think we need to think about this in a sort of multi-dimensional way rather than the negativity all the time. Um, because it can be your advantage. So I've I'm black and um, I live in Folkestone, which is very white. There are black people. There are more and more black people. I've been here 23 years. When I first moved here, we didn't see, we hardly saw any black people. And my my ex-husband, who's white, anytime we saw a black person, he'll point at them and he say, oh, look, there's a black person. And I'll, and I'll be like, oh, my God, a black person. And I'll wave at the other black person and um, they'll wave back and they'll be really excited to see me. There are there are more and more black people, but there aren't any, any ethnic minorities in politics locally. I am it. That's it. 
And um, I've had many people, many people come up to me and say, I voted for you. And some people have actually told me I voted for you because you're black. And because I thought that voting for a black person will mean change in this area, you'll bring something new. So that's their bias coming in and them, them deciding that I want to see change. And because it is a monoculture when it comes to, well, the council anyway, I want to see some sort of cultural change. And I believe that that black person is going to, to bring that. But in another way, what happens sometimes in being a black person is that some people want to play identity politics with me. So they have that perception that as a black person, I am a monolith of all black experience. And I will, um, by, by me being included, that means all black people, all black people from like the 55 countries in Africa are included in the conversation. No, 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 no. It's this particular black people with her particular experiences and her particular background that's included. I will not, I, I cannot speak for every black person. And, you know, we talk about that privilege of being a white man in that as a white man, you are allowed to be an individual. White men are allowed to have individual ideas and um, thoughts, um, careers, all sorts of things. But when you're from a different culture, when you're a woman, you know, when there's a stabbing in, 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 in London and it happens to be a black person stabbing another black person, they bring a black person onto TV. Why are these black people? Why do they keep on stabbing people? Um, when a white person is a paedophile, when a white person kills somebody, do you bring a white person on and say, why do white people keep on killing, killing people? Why do white people keep on being paedophiles? Do you do that? No. But for some reason, this black expert is supposed to talk about why this individual black person killed somebody because somehow we have some sort of hive mind and we all think the same and we are literally the same person. So therefore we can speak for the whole black community. That is just crazy. It's crazy. But people, I think some people don't even realise that. I think you've highlighted such an important point through that example. And I can't help not look at things from an academic lens sometimes, but there's a, a really, I don't know if lovely is the right word, but a useful bit of theory. Patai describes something called surplus visibility, which I think you've just kind of illustrated perfectly, which yeah. is when, when someone belongs to a minority or marginalised group that one aspect of identity gets extrapolated from part mm. to whole and then mm. you're, you're seen as the entire representative for an exactly. entire minority group. And I think the way yeah. you describe that highlights the, the, the difficulties, the challenges, the kind of um, problematic nature of that. Yeah, because I'm not. I'm just me. Through, through that example that you just shared with us there, you've kind of talked about some of the, the disadvantages that come as a result of these shortcuts that we all make <laughs> as humans. And you've also mentioned some of the advantages that can come of that as well I suppose this almost kind of positive negative um, advantage disadvantage model of thinking about bias mm. how how do we have a really meaningful conversation about the damage that these shortcuts can do when we make them but also recognize that there is some advantages that come from them as well how do we balance that conversation yeah so Again, I suppose because I am speaking from my experiences, 
um, I will bring in lots of things about my identities as well. So one of the examples that I use when I when I do the course is about, you know, the the halo effect and the horn effect. So, for example, if we if we're talking about black boys in general, the the horn effect is in schools is that in general, black boys are seen as the problem. Black boys are incredibly badly behaved they're they're obnoxious um they're aggressive they're you know they're dangerous and what can happen and i've seen it happening is that we can have situations where a black boy a white boy may actually exhibit the same behaviors but the black boy is actually treated completely differently from the other people so for example when we when we talk about when we're in school and we um there's a behavior log that has to be written it might be that a white boy does exactly the same thing as a as a as a black boy and they're seen as oh maybe there's a reason why they did that there's that they're given the benefit of the doubt and then a black boy oh he was just being aggressive because you know i've seen and in the media, they're always talking about that black threat, especially from men, that some teachers are literally scared. They are scared of reprimanding a black boy in the same way that they might reprimand another another child, that they might say, I didn't like your behaviour. It was not appropriate. I'm going to give you a detention. They might actually be too scared to speak to that child one-on-one and give them a detention so instead of giving them a detention they escalate it up to head of year rather than speaking to them on a one-to-one basis whereas with the white boy maybe they don't feel as threatened so they do actually give them that benefit benefit of the doubt they send them out of the classroom they have a conversation with them one-to-one so the same behaviors are treated in completely different ways and that's what leads to that you know school to prison pipeline and it is more likely to be those black boys. But on the other end of the spectrum, we could have that sort of um, halo effect. So I use an example that I actually heard from somebody, and this is a true example. You know, a teacher was telling me, oh, yes, you know, we've had lots of Nigerian boys um, come to school, um, started our school. And I've noticed they're really, really hardworking. You know, they're really respectful. They say, yes, mom, and blah, 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 blah. So because of that, that teacher now has that expectation that when they meet a Nigerian boy, still a black boy, but a Nigerian black boy, that he is going to be respectful. He's going to be hardworking. He's going to be academic. And that means that their their perception, they're still, those two boys will be black. One of them will be Caribbean. Another one will be Nigerian. They're both black. But there's completely different perceptions and therefore completely different treatment of those boys. I think that that point you just made there, you you said the same behavior is being interpreted in very different ways Mm -hmm. because of these shortcuts that are being made. And you, you said earlier that you kind of are sharing experiences that are relevant to your identity. And I guess I'm relating them to experiences that are relevant to mine because I think about at the moment how how frightened I am whenever a trans person makes a mistake or says mm. something that isn't quite right mm. or whether they a trans person does something that is wrong um, because I know their behavior 
as an individual will be generalized very differently to if it was a different um, person who had made that same choice. And I think that that point there about the behavior being interpreted differently and the behavior being generalized differently because of these shortcuts is is really damaging. And I see that in, in both the examples you've shared and reflecting on the example that, that I just shared there as well. I think one of the things I want to ask you is, um, I, I worked with a colleague recently and we were discussing this idea of bias at length, actually. And they we discussed the language of unconscious bias, which mm. often is is kind of what people discuss when they talk about what we're talking about today. And my colleague, my friend, their criticism was that if we title something unconscious bias, we almost give permission for it not to be addressed. We, mm. we say it's unconscious. It's, it's therefore mm. out of our control. And I wondered what your thoughts were on that and, and whether whether maybe calling it bias awareness is that is a language that is more useful for us to oh, use. Yeah, I know. I've I've heard this so many times, you know. The thing is, the way I see it is that it's unconscious because you're not aware of it because it's something which has been built up through years of experience, built up through societal norms, as I said before. And the whole point of a course or, you know, it, should, it shouldn't be just a one-off, but reprogramming your brain is actually becoming aware of it. So the whole point of these courses and having, okay, I don't really care if it's called unconscious bias or awareness or whatever, as long as somebody does become aware. That's the whole point of actually going on a course and saying, I see, I know that you are making these decisions based on just snap, snap judgments. I want you to see that that's what you're doing. As long as you are aware of it, I think that's the most important thing. So, okay, yeah, perhaps saying unconscious bias um, is sort of like a get out of jail card. But when you do an unconscious bias course, what it does, it makes that unconscious bias conscious. And that's the important thing. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, making the unconscious conscious, and I, and I suppose the the criticism that comes off the back of that is when we hear people, and you know, I've heard this before, where where colleagues have said, "I've done unconscious bias training," mm-hmm. as if it's an end point, yes, as if they've completed it. I wonder if you have anything to say about that. Yes, yeah, so I've actually I've started working with this amazing college, who they. They basically saw me when I was um, I did my unconscious bias training BNEU, and they want to actually work properly on being becoming anti-racist. And they know that it's not a one-off sort of session. Oh, okay, yeah. We um, during our inset in September we did unconscious bias. Tick, that's done. We don't need to touch it for the rest of the year. And they actually sometimes some schools think they're doing really well refreshing it every year. That's enough. No. It is not. So what this school has done is that they've actually got, you know, a number of strategies that they want to use. They've they've signed up to this amazing organization, which um, whose name I can't I can't remember. And <laughs> they've actually got a plan of um, all of these things that they're going to do. And I've done my first set of training and they want me to come back and continue and I'm going to go into the departments and I'm going to look at their schemes of work and programs of study and I'm going to see what we can do to work on that so it's an ongoing 
thing rather than a one-off oh yeah we've done the unconscious bias training now we are all thinking unconsciously <laughs> consciously about bias that's a lie it's something which is an ongoing thing and because you're so ingrained you're so engrossed in your own body because you know I live in this body all the time and I experience the world in this body that it's really difficult for me to think outside of this body and that's what being consciously aware of your bias is about you have to actually think and that thinking can can be a bit you know labor intensive actually it it really can be I think what, I mean what you've said is so important because it speaks to the importance of having authentic voices in the conversation, doesn't it? Whether it's decision making, whether it's on leadership, whatever context in which we're talking about this, we've all got those blank spots, we've all got those unknown unknowns, and that's why it's so vital to have people from a broad range of experiences and broad range of lived experiences to help inform decision making and all this critical thinking we need to do. Yeah, and I, you know, I want to be at the centre because that's where the decisions are made, and when the decisions are originally made. I want them to be intersectional. I don't want what usually happens. They've already made their decisions. And then your one is an add-on. It's a bolt-on to try to tick a box. And because they are not invested, they don't make the decision based on somebody who that is part of their life. That's part of, you know, who they are. And it's really, really important to them. They base it on, yeah, we need to, you know, tick that identity quota. So we're going to do a little bit of it because it sounds good but we're not even going to do it that well. I, I don't have time for that. I've had enough of that. We don't need to be talking about it. We need to do something about it. And if you are there in that center making that decision, then right at the beginning, it's going to be intersectional. Such an important point there. You made that distinction between almost kind of challenging people, I guess. What is your why? What is the reason you're engaging with this conversation? Because I, I, I work with schools and some of them, I can tell that they've invited me in because they see the importance of trying to make their schools more inclusive and more equitable spaces. And I work with other schools where I can really quickly get the sense that they've invited me in because then they can tick off that I've been there. Uh And, and, And that really makes a difference, not only to the conversation we're having in that room today, but to the real work that then happens beyond that conversation in their school. Because any of these conversations, this conversation today is is the beginning of the actual conversation that needs to happen afterwards. I, I worked with a, a colleague of mine, Audrey, um, Audrey Pantelis, a few mm. weeks ago, and at the end of her session, she said something like, this isn't work done, this is work begun. Mm-hmm. And, and now you go and have the actual conversations that need to happen beyond this. But that, that will only happen if people are, are really invested and see really the purpose of of this conversation and why it's important um i I mean i I found this conversation really fascinating so far and one of the things we always try to do in in our podcast in our work broadly at pride of progress is to kind of have these three elements so we always want to explore what what these ideas that we're discussing look like in theory in practice and in action Mm. i think we've talked about what what bias looks like in theory we've given lots of examples of how it is lived out in practice um but I want to focus on that last kind of crucial stage now uh, about what does this look like in action so based on the conversation we've had today if we think about our our average listener being an educator working in a school what does action look like for them what can they actually do um to further this conversation around bias themselves this thing about 
when we're in school, we talk a lot about, number one, us not being biased against the children, but we also need to think about not being biased against the staff members, but also making sure that when we make those decisions about biases, we're not just doing it to the children, we're doing it with them. And that's really, really important. So they can actually tell us what they're experiencing rather than us making the assumption okay these are the issues and you know this is what we're what we're going to work on so one of the things that i've i've always got my uh, my um, schools to do is to actually do um a rag rating um a mapping this is part of contextual safeguarding where they map out danger points in the school where the students feel uncomfortable and they allow the students to tell them why do you feel uncomfortable what can we do to change things for you and that means that they're involved in the conversation because how can you have a conversation where you're trying to say that you want to make a difference to how children experience school yet you don't speak to the children about it I don't I don't understand make it make sense to me it doesn't make sense so Every all the different actors, the different stakeholders need to be involved, especially if it is a school, in making those decisions. But also the the the, the example that I really love giving is um, quite a lot of the time, uh, as a woman, and maybe it's because specifically I'm a black woman, I might be in a meeting and we're talking about something, and I give what I think is a really good idea, and then. It's sort of ignored sometimes. It's sort of ignored. And then a man further down the line repeats my idea. And I'm like, oh, my God, what an amazing idea. Wow. Now, the, the, the first level of being an ally, that man might say, oh, Abner said such and such. Um, and that was a really good idea. So we should listen to Abner. Okay. That's great. That's the first level of being an ally. But actually, the next level is to say, Abner had a really good idea earlier. Instead of me speaking for Abner, I'm going to hold the floor open for Abner. And Abner can repeat her, repeat her idea. And I'm going to use my privilege as a white man to center things on Abner. Because it's her who said it. Why am I paraphrasing what she said for her? Because I think on the first level of allyship, people think, right, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to repeat what the person said. But then when you repeat the pers- what the person said, you're paraphrasing. You don't have the same conviction. You do not have the same identity. And therefore, you're not going to have the same power behind what you're saying. So actually, what you should say is that, I realise the privilege that I have and that you didn't listen to this person. So I'm giving my privilege to say, listen to her. So spotlight comes from me, redirects to that person. And that person can say in their own language, in the way that they want to, what they want to say. And you're going to listen now because I, the person with privilege, has opened the floor up for that person to speak. That's that's so important. We... We often talk about, when we talk about allyship, this idea of elevating other people's voices. Mm. Um, And I'm I'm a bit of a loser and like to Google like the etymology of where words come from. (laughs) And that's one of the words that I find really interesting, because when we think about elevating, we think about something being lifted from lower down to higher up. We think about lifts, elevators. But the actual etymology of the word elevate is about casting light onto something which is already high. 
but so more people can see it. So when we talk about elevating someone's voice, it's not about lifting up someone's voice who is lower down to be where it is. It's about actually, I'm just going to cast light on something which is already high, which is already Mm. great, but maybe you didn't notice it. Um, And in that example that you shared there, a really great example of how someone could elevate your voice, um, cast light onto the brilliant idea that you had, but maybe went unnoticed in that meeting. Mm, mm. Abony, you've shared so many useful examples today, what bias can look like, so much great advice. Um, There is one more topic I'd like to briefly touch upon, if that's okay. I come from a teacher training background, um, and I'm very painfully aware about the recruitment data that suggests that people that belong to minority groups, particularly black and global majority, they often have a 20% lower acceptance rate, higher than 20%. And then when Mm -hmm. you look at black men, that number's even higher. So clearly bias exists, it's entrenched within recruitment practices. Mm. Um, Could you give advice to people that belong to teacher training, or whether it's people in schools looking to recruit any member of staff, what can they do to make sure that as to much as possible, because often these recruitment teams are very, very small, what can they actively do to try and remove the bias in the recruitment processes? Well, you know, it's it, it's not just recruitment for teacher training. It's also recruitment for jobs as well. There are lots of black teachers who are who are doing supply because they can't get a permanent job. It's this assumption that people have to come from a certain background to be good teachers. A good teacher has to have this particular degree, has to speak in this particular way, has to think in this particular way. It's opening the floor up to the fact that anybody can be a teacher. And we, the students, need role models from all sorts of different backgrounds. But also what the recruiters need to do is to recruit people who are from those minority backgrounds, recruit people who are from those groups, and you'll get more people recruited into teaching. Simple. Abina, Joe and I want to thank you so much for this episode. It's been such an important topic um, and one that we've touched upon in previous episodes. But to have the time to really explore it today and think about some of the implications, some of the examples and some of the best practices you shared. We're so, so grateful for that. So thank you so much. Um, As I'm sure you're aware, our final question normally is what's the best thing about being an LGB teacher or educator? But as we said in your introduction, you wear so many hats, have so many roles and uh, help so many people. Uh, We're going to change the last question slightly to uh, what is the best thing about being an LGBT activist? Um, The best thing, I think, is being able to show that this is what queer looks like. You know, this black woman who's a politician, a mother, neurodiverse. You can be all of those things and also queer. Brilliant answer. Thank you so much. You started this conversation by explaining to us that you help people. And throughout this conversation, you've helped me and you've helped Adam to further our understanding of bias. And I'm certain that you've helped everyone who's listening today to approach this conversation in a way where there isn't shame Mm. and there isn't blame, but it's a realisation that we all need to reflect on this and to to start that process of learning and unlearning so that we can try and create more equity and more inclusion. Now, we could have carried this conversation on for for so long because I know that as well as working around bias and in education, you also do so much work within politics, particularly around empowering women. So I wonder if we could end our conversation by you just letting anyone know who's listening today, how they can connect with you or continue to find out more about the work that you're doing. Okay, so I'm... I work with LWN, which is a Labour Women's Network, and that's empowering women within the Labour movement who want to become councillors, um, want to um, become politicians, um, um, helping them to find their political voice. 
Um, I also work with, or I'm part of the exec for Fabian Women's Network, and they have an amazing mentoring program. Um, it's not just for women who want to go into politics, but women um, who want to go into the third sector. And they sign you up to uh, an amazing WhatsApp group. I have never met a group of uh, such phenomenal women in my whole life. Our WhatsApp group has about 200 women on there. And every, you know, every year you'll get people saying, oh, I got an OBE, I got an MBE, I've become an MP, I've done, I'm doing this, I'm working for the UN. You can ask people any question on that WhatsApp group and they will either know the answer or they'll know somebody who knows somebody who knows the answer. It is amazing. I could ask them, you know, what are the, um, the breeding characteristics of penguins in Outer Mongolia? I don't even know if there's penguins in Outer Mongolia, but they would know. They would know that. That's how awesome that group is. So, you know, I, I urge you, if you're interested in the first sector charities or politics, um, sign up to the mentoring scheme. And then Labour Women's Network does Making Your Mark, which is their sort of starter training, where they train you to be able to speak concisely and succinctly, which I'm not doing at the moment, but I can when I need to. When I'm on edge, I need to. I will, I will be able to do it. And then they do the Joe Cox programme, which was named after Joe Cox, who was sadly um, killed. Um, but again, to sort of grow political power um, within women's groups so that women can go forward to be councillors and, and, and politicians because there aren't enough of us. And the decisions need to be made by, you know, we're 50, 50 something percent, 52 percent of the population. Yet when it comes to I think I had a statistic and I've forgotten it. Um, yet when it comes to politics, we're a very, very small percentage. And that's crazy. We should be at least 50% of MPs because they're the people who make the decisions about what happens in all of our lives. And anybody who tells me that, oh, I'm not involved in politics, I'm, I'm like, how? How can't you be? Politics is life. Everything that you are doing and can do at the moment is because of politics. The fact that we as LGBT people have more rights and it can actually breathe easy and not, you know, be killed because of who we are is because of politics, because of the laws that have been brought, put into place. So how can you not be political? Don't understand it. Anyway, <laughs> I'll stop there. <laughs> I could talk to you forever. Um, thank you. Um, thank you so much, Amna, for, for helping us, for helping our listeners. Thank you for giving up your time to talk to us today. Thanks, Amna. No problem at all. I loved it. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. I love that conversation, particularly I really like the way that Abner frames this conversation. So there isn't blame, there isn't shame. We all have this bias. It's a shortcut that we all we all create and it makes our life easier. But there are times where it doesn't make people's lives easier and we need to become aware of that so that we can try and overcome it. Yeah, I love the way she framed that because I think often when we discuss bias, it naturally gets people's backs up because they become defensive. But by acknowledging that we all have bias by the very nature of the way we've been raised and socialised, by by working out what our starting points are, I think that's a really healthy way to start that conversation. Yeah, I think um, there's there's so many people who will have listened to this today and it will have started a process of reflection that's going to really help them to create more equitable and inclusive spaces. Thank you so much for being part of this conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be really grateful if you could leave a review or a five-star rating, as this helps other educators to find these stories. If you want to continue the conversation, to comment or to ask a question, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Pride Progress. 
You can also find other ways to contact us in the show notes. Thanks for listening.